Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode 10 of a 20 episode series all about Antarctica. So we are halfway there, y'all. I'll keep releasing them every Thursday until I run out of episodes. Or unless y'all want to keep hearing about Antarctica, in which case I have loads more people I could talk to. Any rate, so today's episode features Emily Schwanz. Emily is a PhD candidate at Penn State, working on glacier modeling in Antarctica, specifically the Thwaites Glacier. So the Thwaites Glacier is part of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, is sometimes referred to as the Doomsday Glacier, and is the widest glacier on Earth at 80 miles, which is astounding. So understanding and modeling all of these changes is part of what Emily works on and what we'll talk about today. But we also talk about her background, her introduction to geology, fieldwork and modeling, and of course there are tangents about science fiction. Y'all should know by now I'm gonna go there whenever I can. So enjoy this conversation with Emily. So I just went over your notes and I looked at the website that's on your Twitter profile and I am very excited to hear all about your glacier modeling because it sounds amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, I like it. <laughs> I'm super excited to be here and to chat about it too. It's nice to be able to remind yourself of like the big picture and why you're doing what you're doing, especially when it is kind of a slog working from home. So I'm excited to be here. I totally understand and agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I am a PhD candidate with the Penn State Ice and Climate Group. Um, I got my master's here too. I really liked it, so I stayed. <laughs> And I, I got my bachelor's in, in geophysics and various minors from the Colorado School of Mines. So I have, a, I have a different background, but what I'm doing right now is I'm working uh, partially in affiliation with the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration. Uh, I am a modeler on the um, GHOST team, which is a big geophysics and modeling project uh, as part of the ITGC. And so what I use, uh, what I use model, models for right now is basically investigating uh, how various processes happening in and around Swaites Glacier uh, affect how it reacts to uh, changes in its environment. And that's because we want to figure out where the data that we're going to gather down there, you know, at the end of the earth, when we're allowed to go back there, uh, <laughs> we want to figure out what data is like the most influential and where we need the data and models can really help us kind of figure that out and make it, you know, worth our while going down there. Um, not that data gathering is ever unguided, but it definitely provides a, a different perspective. Right, yeah, the window of time is pretty small overall, so mm -hmm. you might want to make it as efficient as possible. Exactly, and, and also, you know, adjust plans accordingly when things like COVID happen or other things that, you know, maybe are more predictable. But um, when those kind of delays happen, you have to readjust and say, okay, well, now we have this time what do we need to accomplish? And even out in the field on a, on a regular basis, and I don't do it anymore, but um, you change plans, you adjust to the environment um, as you kind of look around and see, okay, what is actually feasible with the time and fuel and resources that we have. And so uh, I think that a lot of data gatherers manage doing that on their own just fine. But I think that having some models to support like, I guess the ranking of your different field objectives is uh, something that I think the ghost team is trying to uh, focus on. Yeah, I, I do a lot of field work, not as somewhere as remote as Antarctica, but yeah, you definitely have to make those decisions on the fly sometimes. Like, okay, I only have X amount of time and Y amount of fuel, what am I gonna do? Exactly, and what is most important to do, not just for my interests, but for like the big project scope. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so will you tell me maybe some about the Thwaites Glacier because, yeah. I, like yeah. maybe just to put it into context? Absolutely. Uh, so Thwaites Glacier is a massive glacier uh, on along the Amundsen Sea coast in West Antarctica. Uh, it's been changing a lot. It's losing a lot of mass and it's, it's in this interesting setting where it's this very wide glacier. A lot of glaciers are in fjords, so these narrow like U-shaped valleys um, that kind of hold the glaciers on the sides, but Thwaites is uh, a unique situation where it's very wide and doesn't have that. And so the only thing supporting it, so to speak, is its bed, which it's grinding up against as it's sliding towards the ocean. And uh, the fact that there's slow moving ice on either side of it, uh, that's kind of pulling back uh, with sheer stress. And so 
not only is it kind of like in the situation where it doesn't have a whole lot to fall back on while it's changing a lot, it's also um, situated such that if it starts to go, there are these connections to these deep marine basins underneath the Western ice sheet. And in models, um, I'm gonna throw a citation at you. <laughs> uh, David Pollard and Rob DeCanto modeled that this uh, Thwaites Glacier area was the most likely pathway by which they could see this collapse of the entire West Antarctic ice sheet. And so that's why we care about it. It's, it's, it's interesting in and of itself, but it's also uh, the weak underbelly uh, of the West Antarctic ice sheet. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just a really cool glacier too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that we, or maybe just me, uh, I think that there's like maybe a general knowledge that, you know, ice in Antarctica could be in trouble, but maybe we don't know the details. So that's why I was curious about like the context, but it sounds like this one is pivotal. Exactly, exactly. That's a great way to put it. And no, I mean, the detail, I just got into the details when I started my master's here. So, I mean, the details are pretty nitty gritty at times, but all in all, it's, it's a big bowl of ice that's <laughs> being melted from the sides and the whole thing just spreading out faster and faster. And the bowl is the bad part because if it starts to retreat into a bowl, you're retreating into thicker and thicker ice, uh, which flows faster because ice is kind of like this pile that's spreading out under its own weight. And so if you have a bigger pile, it's spreading out faster. Uh, and that's the problem with the West Arctic ice sheet is that you get into thicker and thicker ice. So that's kind of the details of why that part of Antarctica is of particular concern. Well, and then there's the other thing too, it's like ice on land contributes to sea level rise. So if that whole thing like collapses into the sea around there, that's gonna be uh -huh. a big problem. Yeah, like six meters big. <laughs> Yeah, that means, you know, so I'm in South Louisiana, so there goes my coast, basically. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's kind of the idea, and that's the motivation of the work, right? It's to tell people who are near the coast, um, like, hey, you might want to get flood insurance, <laughs> or you might want to not consider buying that beach property, because it's going to be beachfront property, and that's going to be great, but then in 50 years, not so much anymore. I have questions about like the modeling part of it, but I don't really know enough about modeling to ask the question, I guess. So maybe can you just like tell me sort of how it's done and yeah. things like that? Absolutely. So modeling in general, you use a computer and math that you think describes processes. And, and we have a good concept of, of, <laughs> of the fact that the math does work. Um, we test that in laboratories and in, in data observation, as, as you know. But generally speaking, you take these uh, constitutive relations, this physics, and you distill it into code in a computer. And then you give the code information on the kind of setting that tends to affect uh, you know, the speed, the geometry, uh, those kind of things on the glacier. And then you plug in things like what you think the rainfall or snowfall is going to be. And you plug in things like how much it's melting uh, from the ocean. And then you kind of, you, you constrain it in this way so that you capture how it is now. And then what I do is I then run it forward in time. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not easy to predict the future, right? <laughs> but it's really not easy uh, if you don't know exactly how these things that you're plugging into the model are also going to change in the future. And so it's already hard enough to, you know, fly a satellite over the ice X number of times to figure out how fast it's going now. But then you take that and you add physics and you say, okay, how fast will it be in 50 years? What does that mean for sea level rise? And so I guess that's my lens of modeling and how I uh, understand it and uh, how I apply it. But I think it's this, there's this huge breadth of modeling where a lot of people are just trying to hone in on one specific important process and they just model that process. And then there's people like, like Dave Pollard and other people that are other researchers that uh, do like these continental scale uh, models that take a lot of information and they do it on a coarser resolution, but they can look at, you know, thousands of year timescales. Um, so it's really a question of what model do you use for the question that you're trying to answer? And I work sort of in the like 100 to 200 year, up to 500 uh, year timescales, 
where it's like, okay, sea level rise is an important question in those timescales. And it's an absolutely important question in other timescales, like larger ones, because you then kind of dial the model backwards and say, okay, can we match what we know about sea level rise? Does that agree with the physics that we put in the model? And so just kind of this cool loop of trying to predict something that you already know and then seeing if it matches, improving it if it doesn't, and then taking that and pushing it forward into what you don't know. Yeah, it just, I mean, there's a lot of variables there and it seems to me based on my limited experience that like the more data you have and the better that data is, the better your model will be. Um, Absolutely, no, data is uh, what drives better models and then better models drive a better pl plan for our future. So it's, it's a really nice loop. And then better models can also help us get better data and vice versa. So that's yeah. why I think glaciology is really cool because it's a super collaborative and uh, it means that these two facets of the community have to talk to each other, uh, <laughs> which is super challenging because me as a modeler, I'm like, can't you just get better data? And they're like, no, do you want to go sit on an ice sheet for a couple of weeks? It's like, uh. <laughs> no, but I think that it's uh, within the ITGC, it seems like we have a lot of good natured people who understand that modelers don't understand and you understand that they as data gatherers don't understand. And so it's, I think we've been trying to cultivate like this open conversation about it to make sure that we are doing the best with what we have. And so that's really cool to be a part of. Yeah, totally. I also think that that's why people do the different jobs, right? Like I'm not gonna be a modeler cause I don't get it. I'll be a field <laughs> scientist. And then the modelers can take my data and do with it as they will. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think that that's, it's pretty much exactly where, where I'm like, hmm, I like doing field stuff. I really understand how field stuff works because I have a good field background. So I know that I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably would be helpful for you though, just to like at least have an, some knowledge of like how field stuff works. Cause I've definitely in my career gotten requests from people who don't do field work to like do a thing. And I'm like, that won't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not feasible. No, I agree. And conversation only gets you so far. I, I do think that, I mean, if they sent me to Antarctica, I would not complain. I don't want to make a regular thing of it, but I would definitely go. And uh, I actually did a smaller field campaign uh, last year in uh, Canada. So not Antarctica, but it was still, you know, we were, it was rugged. We were, we were out um, off of, off of a trail camping for a month in the dirt. So and it definitely helped me. It, it was humbling. <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, you can't just get easy data. You know, you have to actually plug all this stuff in. There are people who do this. And it was a good reminder of that. I definitely knew that. I think that some modelers might not, but I think that that's why it's important to have these conversations. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes, or at least this is my perspective, being a field scientist, sometimes it feels like the people doing the field science aren't always valued maybe as much as I personally as a field scientist think we should because literal sweat, blood, and sometimes tears have gone into the gathering this data. Oh my God, so, yes. Just like... <laughs> here, but here it is, you know, so, and then somebody's like, couldn't you get better resolution? And you're just standing up there waiting to cry again. And you're like, why would you ask me this? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I lost both my heels for like a good week. It's, yeah. you know, it's grueling work and I have the utmost respect for field scientists. And if they give me a data set and it's not quite what I'd hoped for, that's okay. Because I figure they did the best that they could. Yeah, but, conditions can be challenging, even you know, not in Antarctica. But I also think that that doesn't mean that the people doing the modeling or whatever else aren't also valuable because I can't do that. That's why it's so great to have the collaboration, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, do you want to sit in front of a computer and mash your head up against the same code for three hours just to get the same yeah. error and realize it was a comma? Probably not. <laughs> From experience in grad school, I know I do not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, it's... Yeah. It's all types and that's, that's totally. the great thing about science is you find your niche and, and it's good because other people don't wanna do that. <laughs> right, exactly, that's why it's so great. So um, I'm curious how you ended up, you know, doing glacial modeling. Like how did you end up where you are? Mm. My parents are both geologists and my brother got a geology degree. 
So I pretty deliberately was like, I'm not doing anything related to geoscience. No way. I do not want to do that. <laughs> so I went to School of Mines, uh, Colorado School of Mines. It's in Golden. I don't know if you're familiar at all, but it's like an engineering school. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do engineering and I want to work on climate change. That was pretty much all I had figured out uh, at the beginning of my undergraduate. I had the privilege of not having to work while I was in school and getting to go to school, period. Uh, and so I was able to kind of fill out my schedule a little bit and shop around for classes. Uh, so even though I declared mechanical engineering, I, uh, I still took some, some electives and that's how I ended up in this one credit hour course my sophomore year called Introduction to Geophysics. Uh, it was taught by Dr. Terry Young and it was like a course that was meant to draw people like me into the major. Um, and it caught me right when I was realizing that photovoltaics and turbines weren't like super inspiring to me personally, um, but Terry and geophysics were. <laughs> uh, so I literally filled out like a whole composition book for this one credit course, which I don't even do for my math courses. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm interested in this. But I guess it was just so cool to me that you could take like this extreme range of earth systems and actually put a number to them, which is kind of what geophysics is to me. Um, it's like a critical thinker's paradise. Uh, you take something you can't directly observe and then you understand the physics well enough to like measure it and answer your question, but also develop these models. And so it's like a super satisfying loop as we discussed. But I, I basically took that course and was like, wow, this is cool and switched my major. And then School of Mines is kind of like this oil and gas centric school, but uh, it just wasn't totally in my interest. Like I could have approached the climate change problem from that angle, like absolutely. Uh, I do think the energy companies need to be the ones to kind of approach that. But it just didn't speak to my interests in like broader earth system sciences. Um, and so when I was looking to graduate with this geophysics degree, uh, I had like a random math minor and geology minor. I was kind of like, okay, what do I do with this? Like I like rocks, but I like shorter time scales. Um, and kind of just stumbled into glaciers. Honestly, I was looking at programs online. I was like, this sounds really cool. It directly addresses climate change. It has to do with math and physics, which I'm good at. And it has to do with like these, I guess the extreme conditions definitely were like an appeal to me. Now that I'm not a field scientist, I feel like weird thinking about that, that I was so excited about potentially tromping around on glaciers for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, it is exciting. I've done it. It's fun. But, um, yeah, that's kind of, I kind of just stumbled on it and it just seemed like such a good way to use the things that I'm good at, the things that I'm interested in, and to apply it towards a problem that I think is very important and relevant. And people always ask, like, isn't it depressing because all the ice is melting and technically not all of it's melting, right? But um, most of it's melting <laughs> and most of it will continue to melt. But I think it's exciting because stuff's changing now. I get to be a scientist during the time where it's probably most interesting to be a glaciologist. So I, I don't know if that like answers your question. Stumbling into it isn't a super satisfying answer. But... No, but it is because it's surprisingly common. I've talked to like 80 people now for this podcast. And I think only like two people had like a, like I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so I can get to this. I'm like, that is my plan. Everybody's right. like, yeah, I just sort of like took a class or met someone that mm -hmm. I found this interesting. So then I just went that way. And then I found something else that was interesting and sounded cool. And then I did that. Like, I think that that, that path is underrated because it's cool in hindsight to see like how it happened, even though at the time it was like, probably, uh, I'm just going to go do this next and see where that goes. Exactly. It's like, why not take planetary geology? Oh, we're talking about ice. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's it's pretty much exactly how it happens. And it is satisfying to hear that other people did that too. Cause I always feel self-conscious people are like, I, you know, woke up one day when I was 12 and decided I was going to, I was like, wow, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's and I don't, cool. That's amazing. But yeah, I definitely, in my experience talking to people, I mean, this is anecdotal, but like, I, that definitely doesn't seem like the norm. Um, or maybe people are just like trying to make it sound like they had it more together than they did. <laughs> well, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Now I look back and I romanticize it. And I'm like, you know, I did do that glacier mass balance project in that one class. <laughs> and like, you look back and you're like, oh yeah, like I did not at all think that I'd be ending up where I was. But in hindsight, yes, I was interested in this all along. And it is cool because you do kind of reframe it because the path becomes clearer as you're looking back on it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I, 
I never really understood what the School of Mines, like why it was called that. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, historically it was a mining school, right? Like Golden is named aptly. <laughs> yeah. um, there is a abandoned mine underneath the freshman parking lot. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really cool place. It's a gorgeous place to live. And I think they kind of, so they started out as a mining school and then it sort of just adapted into this energies school, right? Energy and more or less resource acquisition was kind of the focus. I think it's like one of very few places where you can get a mining major. There's an explosives miner that was highly coveted for all the right reasons. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a really cool school. And actually now they're, is a glaciology program in geophysics. Uh, Matt Secret runs it, and I am just so stoked seeing that my alma uh, mater is like actually getting into what I'm into. It's very exciting. But yeah, I mean, the geophysics program when I was there was just awesome. It was, they gave us a breadth of classes. They didn't just focus on oil and gas. Um, mm -hmm. it, I think it was one of the majors that directly pertained to the industry where they, I think they gave you, and maybe this was the department at the time, but I think they gave you more um, opportunity to explore different applications. So yeah, it was a really cool place to go. Uh, it's pretty competitive, but I, I really liked it. I enjoy doing homework because I'm weird, so. <laughs> I always liked it too, though. I was like, I have, but I also just like instructions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was like, oh, here's this homework. Now go do these things. Okay. <laughs> exactly. It's like, thank you for laying it out for me. Now I'm like, man, I wish I had a rubric for research. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally felt that way when I was doing my master's. I was like, I don't know what I do after I do all my field work. What is the next step? I need right. like someone to just give me the steps and I will go do them and I figured it out but right eventually you make your own steps and yeah basically. it's really cool but yeah no for sure I feel you on that I also think that that's cool that your parents are both geologists because I feel like a lot of people end up in you know a stem field by accident but not because they knew that it existed going in you know mm -hmm. um so it's cool that you had a little bit of exposure to that beforehand I did. I did. I will say, though, I had no clue what I was doing when I was applying to grad school. A lot of people are like, man, you know, if you had parents that went to grad school, like, I bet you had a leg up. I'm like, I don't remember them saying anything other than you should probably contact an advisor right around now. I was like, okay, how do you, how do I do that? <laughs> They're like, well, we used to write letters. It's like, well, probably not relevant anymore. But no, I definitely did. I, I benefited from their exposure. It was just kind of funny to me that I sort of tried to avoid their path and ended up uh, on it. Not that there was anything wrong with it. I was just kind of like, oh, you know, I don't want to do the same thing as my parents. Uh, and my brother ended up actually not really using his degree. So I saw that as like a red flag, which it ended up not being. But <laughs> I definitely like that they both do something similar. I will say glaciology is not geology. And we, we have very different concepts, I think, of what glaciology entails, because I approached it from like this weird numerical math background. They approach it from like all the glacial landforms and all the things that glaciers do to rocks. And so it's, it's super interesting how like one field can span disciplines like that. My mom got her master's and my dad got his PhD and that's how they met and super cute. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me, like the way family can impact the decisions someone makes like for their career, because mine was sort of like the flip, like they didn't want me to do what I did, but I was paying for school and I was stubborn and I was going to do it anyway and they didn't have any say in it. So it didn't matter what they thought is how my <laughs> rebellious 18 year old self thought. Right. Um, and I mean, I regret nothing. Uh, I, they still don't know <laughs> what I do, but that's fine. Um, yeah. So it's cool. I also think it's cool that you have like some sort of like common ground with your parents, even though like, like you said, you're coming from one side and they're coming from the other. No, absolutely. And it's like, I explain my work to my dad and he can identify with it because of his similar background. Um, I have tried to explain it to a lot of other people that aren't my parents that don't have a geology background. And I need to learn how to explain my work better <laughs> is, is my takeaway from those conversations. Uh, no, but it can be really challenging to communicate science if you don't have a similar background. 
And that's why science communication is such a cool thing. And I'm such a fan of, I guess, the movement that I see, at least within my community and maybe my generation in my community to be better communicators and to like make sure that we are actually doing the public service part of science, which is communicating results. So. Yeah, absolutely. So like I got out of grad school 10 years ago and when I was in grad school, there was an expectation that you just like didn't share your work with anybody until it was published. Like, you know, maybe you can like talk to your friends or whatever, but like, so I did a lot of bird surveys, but like definitely don't share my, my bird information with anybody or even the species numbers, like things like that. And it was, it has gotten me thinking recently, like, wonder what grad school would be like now when I feel like it's totally flipped and there's some aspect of outreach sort of communication, those kinds of things sort of expected now, 10 years later. And I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I do think that more value is being placed on those kind of roles. Um, it's more CV worthy, which is a terrible way to put it, but like, that's, I think that's kind of the, the consensus. I will say that putting your work out there means that with, with all the access that people have to information now, um, I think that putting your work out there can be sort of a, you're putting your neck out there and you could get swooped. But I think there's also more of an understanding of, we should be doing this communication. Let's hold people accountable. If we see somebody you know, taking someone's work, we know that we saw this person's work at a conference this long ago. And just because they hadn't pushed pushed it out yet doesn't mean that they didn't do it. So I don't know. I, I ultimately think that that's going to win out in the end. I try not to stress about it, but no, I think it, it, it also kind of created a little bit more pressure to publish quickly because uh, that's definitely still the case. I think that there's less secrecy involved and there's more of an expectation of being open about your research, but I think there's also in some ways more of an expectation to publish it um, in a quick time frame which is fair enough. Everything's moving quite fast these days and yeah. information should too. Yeah, it does all move quite quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I also think that there's a way to sort of like balance the line, right? Like where you can communicate the, like about your work without giving away your, your data essentially. Right, right. You know, like, these are the things that I do or the types of things or the equipment I use or why I'm doing this or things like that. And that can be really valuable because honestly, a lot of people outside of each person's field just like, maybe don't know, you know, and I just think that that's really interesting to talk about. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I think that, I think a lot of people also walk a fine line between telling too much about their methods to people who just aren't interested in just how they got there. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it's important to be open about what you're doing. And I think that's kind of in the same collaborative vein um, as, as we were discussing before. It's like there. I mean, you should own your science, right? There's this pressure to publish, but I think that you should also just value science as a whole and not, not worry about being swooped more than worrying about communicating. Yeah, I agree. I wish that was a thing that, or maybe it is now, but when I was in school, it was like not a thing. Like teaching how people have to communicate better is, is just like something they assumed you'd figure out on your own. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I'm seeing more emphasis on it, which is cool. Um, especially like I can communicate my research to a group full of people who kind of know about my research. That's, I feel like what we often emphasize, uh, throughout like masters or beginning of PhD programs. It's like, Hey, you have to be able to convey your results to a scientific audience. Uh, there isn't as much of an emphasis on, Hey, you should also learn to communicate your results to a non-scientific audience. Um, I've attended so many workshops on that kind of thing, and that is readily out there. I think it just has to be something that people, it, it's something that people do as kind of extra credit. Um, I wish it were less extra credit and more like a, hey, you know, part of our program is teaching you to be a science communicator or a mentor or, um, but I think slowly but surely we're placing more emphasis on those roles that scientists also play. Uh, and I'm excited. I love mentorship and I love outreach. Yeah, mentoring is like super valuable and it was not a thing I was even aware of. I mean like I always knew mentoring programs and things like that formally existed but um it wasn't until like the last couple of years that I really understood the value of it because I was never in one of those types of relationships in, in on either side of it and it's I think something that gets overlooked and it just can be so helpful 
Yeah. And I mean, your advisor can be a mentor, but even just having someone in your department or I have a couple of remote mentors that I just like email about different things. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's something that's super valuable and it's something that I, um, I guess when, and if haven't totally decided my path yet, but if, if I am serving as an advisor, that's something that I'd like to, I don't know, encourage my students to do. It's like, go talk to people, please go make friends with researchers who can give you a better perspective than I can, because I have my background and you may not be, you know, my mini me. <laughs> and, uh, no, I think that my advisor's great about that. I'm pretty lucky. He's like, yeah, let me introduce you to various people that you might want to talk to. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really great. Cause that can be kind of a hard, like it, you get used to it eventually like talking to people you don't know, but it can be hard, especially if you're like maybe more introverted like I am. Exactly. No, I, the subtle art of inserting oneself is, uh, it's, it's nerve wracking. I'm an anxious and generally introverted person too. I, I'm pretty decent at being social when I set my mind to it, but as a general rule, I don't like, I don't like confrontation or anything like that. So no, I think it is important that you have kind of the initial, like your advisor sort of guides you into mm -hmm. approaching a mentor and it's like, Hey, you can do this. And maybe you'll get a bad response once, but most people will be like, Hey, yeah, sounds good. Let's chat. Yeah, totally. That's what I found. But it's tough because it's like really the like extroversions learn skill. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not really like natural to me. Yeah. But yeah, you can totally learn these skills and do it, but it's it's tough. Um, yeah, it's definitely tough. And I mean, now that we have all these virtual conferences, my introverted self is like, yes, this is great. When I go and get coffee, I don't have to talk to people. Not that you ever have to. And I really love chatting with people. I do. It's what gets me excited about science, but sometimes it's exhausting. It is super exhausting. And so like part of me loves the virtual conferences, but I appreciate the whole tendency of in-person things to kind of push me out of my comfort zone um, in yeah. terms of talking to other people in my field. But No, I totally agree. Um... I don't know if I asked you this specifically or if we got to it, but the, so what is your like goal? I guess I'm curious what exactly you're looking to figure out. But the goal with my research, uh, so I, I work on basal processes. I basically want to figure out how exactly the ice is sliding over the bed that it's on. And the bed that it's on is spatially variable. You know, it's not just one kind of rock everywhere. And you also have water and other things going on at the base that you can't really constrain through like, really thick ice in all places. So you kind of have to make some assumptions. Uh, and that's how models currently work is we make these assumptions about what the basal state of the ice is like, and then we run it forward in time uh, under these like climatic and ocean forcings that sort of dictate how it might change in the future. Um, but what I do is I basically test out various laws that we have. Um, these have been validated through uh, laboratory experiments. Uh, they match ice velocities that we observe with satellites. And so they're valid laws for the slip or motion that's happening at the bed. But several laws work. So it's this problem of like non-uniqueness, like, okay, yeah, I can reproduce these current velocities with both of this, these physics. And so I know that both of these physics are true in some places. We don't quite know the distribution of where it moves like this versus where it moves like this. Um, and if the bed's squishier, the glacier on top responds very differently than if the bed is hard and rigid. And so that's kind of what for my master's work and sort of what I'm jumping off with a PhD um, on is, is this basal conditions and how they make the future look very different because the ice retreats very differently over squishy versus hard bed. Um, and so the data gets, uh, that we can get tells us, you know, okay, where is it harder? Where does it move like this versus um, in another way? And I guess my eventual goal with the PhD is to incorporate the data that we get from the field into models to make it a more meaningful thing. Uh, other than like, because it's great that we have the physics, but we should really validate the physics and we should really consider um, putting as much data behind the physics that we use as possible. So that's the eventual goal with the sweet stuff. Uh, other than that, I'm involved in um, that, the field campaign in Canada I referred to. I'm gonna try and do some modeling for that. Um, that's more of like a, 
Like I need to learn how to initiate my own model as a PhD person. And so I'm going to beat my head up against it and see what I can do with it. And it's going to be more exploratory because it's not this big ice sheet uh, with all this like beautiful satellite data that constrains it just so. It's this mountain glacier that we trekked on. And so I'm really excited to see how that pans out and how I can incorporate um, the data that we got there on where it's uh, sticky at the bed versus uh, slippy, which is my super technical way of uh, explaining it. <laughs> uh, but we take that data and then if we stick it into a model and say, okay, these are the basic conditions, how is this gonna change in the future? That big glacier in Canada is sort of an analog for uh, different glaciers in Antarctica. And so it, it will ultimately inform the Antarctic problem, but it's more of a, uh, a smaller project on the side, but I don't know what else I'm going to do for the PhD at this point, uh, aside from those two things that I think I got my work cut out for me. <laughs> with those. I have a like data question, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious how you figure out what the surface underneath the glacier is like, cause right. some of these glaciers can be really thick, right? Mm -hmm. So like, how do you know what's under there and like if it's softer or not or right. whatever? Well, Geophysics, <laughs> you use various uh, <laughs> data methods that tell you different properties and you kind of combine like where these properties overlap and where they don't overlap to figure out what it looks like. And so for the soft versus squishy, uh, we use seismic, which is essentially, uh, you know, cause explosions on the ice, measure the acoustic waves that bounce back off the surface um, below the ice. They travel through the ice pretty readily. And then we can kind of say, okay, we know it is yay thick and here it appears to be softer and here it appears to be harder. Um, and then you can also use various electric methods. Um, so that's more of like a mechanics, like acoustics method. And then you can also use other sensing to kind of see, okay, where's their water? Uh, is it salty water? Is it fresh water? Where's the water coming from? And while I don't specialize in those methods for glaciology, um, that's, that's kind of the idea is take data where it is influential, uh, measure these individual properties, and then sort of combine it into a big picture that gives us more of an idea of the state of, uh, of the base of the ice and also how that might change. And that's the tricky part is the how it might change in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just curious because like, well, you can't see through all of that ice to mm -hmm. just like visually verify the bottoms. I was like, I was just curious how you tell, but that's, I would never realize that like seismics and acoustics and things like that could tell you, but that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why I love geophysics. And that's what got me into it. It's like, oh my God, I can just do things to this problem and get a number. That was that's so satisfying to me. Yeah, so that's how we measure that. It's, it's pretty cool. And also there are direct observations, you know, you can drill through the ice. It's just very expensive. And those are point wise measurements. And so like, that's great because then we get a point wise to verify that our, uh, like interpretation of the large scale data was right. And so that's kind of like how, how you sort of work into the whole picture, how you get from wiggles to it's soft here. <laughs> it's like, you know, ground truthing, but you know, glacier style. Yeah, exactly. Literal ground truthing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I did something much smaller scale, similar where I had outdated satellite imagery that I was using for rice fields. Cause I mean, this was forever ago. And so the imagery just wasn't as updated as re regularly. And I was like, okay, well, this should be a rice field. Now I'm going to go drive to this field and make sure it is this year because I need to use rice fields. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The imagery or things like that can get you so far, but it's, it's good to have like just extra verification. Absolutely. No, there have to be boots on the ice to make sure that what we think we see is actually what we're seeing. Yeah. I was curious because I was like, I know that there are ways to sort of like see what has happened in the past sort of where you can like see features like with lidar and stuff because there's all yeah. these maps of the mississippi river and so i was curious i was like i don't know if that would work with ice because you wouldn't i don't think you'd be able to see all the way through it so i just i had no idea so that's really cool yeah and i mean in terms of things that happened in the past you can look at deglaciated landscapes so landscapes that used to be under the ice but are no longer there and you can look at the features there and sort of unravel the story that way too. So there's all these different like points of uh, data collection where there are people who are studying the landforms left over. There's people who are studying the current processes and there's people who are trying to project those processes into the future. I do think the time I have spent where there are signs of, you know, glaciers having been in the past, you know, U-shaped valleys and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, 
if you know what you're looking for, the signs are there. Yeah. You, I mean, you can make these direct measurements too. You can uh, do this cosmogenic exposure dating, which basically tells you how long a rock has been baking in the sun. So it wasn't covered by ice during this time. Uh, it basically gets a rock sunburn is <laughs> going to be my way of describing it. And you can measure how long it's been seeing daylight basically. And so that gives you a lot, if you do that around Antarctica and places that you know used to have ice on them, you can see how long it's been. And so that's kind of another way to uh, unravel how long the ice has been where it is and how it might change. It's that is so crazy. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's just, it's insane. The ITGC is so cool because I'm learning so much about all these different methods uh, to do glaciology. They strap GPSs on seals so that they can dive underneath ice shelves and measure stuff. It's just incredibly cool science. Yeah, so I'm gonna ask you the big question. It's like, what would you want to do after your PhD or maybe also slash what would your dream job or dream project be? A couple of years ago, I probably would have just said working for NASA and that would have been my answer. Um, I would still like to work for NASA. So uh, <laughs> in case you anybody know anybody at NASA, uh, but I don't know, I really enjoy teaching. I like getting people excited about what I'm excited about. That is super satisfying to me. And so I think that the, the job down the road is not just going to be research oriented. I love doing research. I like doing it. I, I even like writing and put and putting figures together. Um, but what I enjoy most of all is, is, is getting people excited about science. And so I guess some sort of job where I could do a good amount of outreach, but also sort of, I, I like teaching because it caters to uh, people who are really looking to understand something in depth. Uh, which I also like. I really like just communicating my science on a basic level so that people just can get excited about it and know what it's about. But I really enjoy uh, thorough understanding and getting there with students. Uh, the TAing I've done in grad school is, has shown me that that's what makes me smile at the end of the day. So I don't know, that's not a super specific goal, but that's kind of like the vision of the future. And I, I think it's really cool when we visualize science. And so it's something I'm really into. We are working, well, we're working on, COVID kind of interrupted it because it's a very tactile exhibit, but we're working on a VR exhibit for our Earth and Mineral Sciences Museum. You know, we could put the person inside a glacier and show them what we're talking about, or we can fly them over Antarctica. So things like that, where people can actually get their hands on the science and it's something that's accessible and exciting. Uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm into. So pretty much any job that involves that sort of thing is what I'm gunning for at this point, but who knows? I mean, in two years, I might be more interested in something else, but I, I have a feeling that teaching is going to kind of guide uh, where I end up quite a bit. Yeah, I was just curious. I know that's a really tough question, but I'm always just curious because some people do have like a very specific vision at, yeah. you know, at this point once we've gotten down the career path a little bit. And some people like me, I'm just like, I don't know, hopefully doing field work and not hating my job and, you know, being employed. <laughs> and so that could be a lot of things, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. No, and I think it's great when people have these three to five year plans. And I do think there is definitely a place for that um, in science. But I also think that keeping an open mind and not necessarily... Maybe this is just me being anxious, but I don't want to pigeonhole myself. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm in a PhD program studying something very specific already. Like, I'm aware that I'm already down the pigeonhole a bit, but I don't know. I think the best scientists, or the ones that I admire most, at least, are the ones who do intersectional science and who do, like, collaborative science. And I think that's more my goal than this specific five years, want to have X number of publications and be a research professor at blank. I think it just, as long as I follow, I guess, the people who are trying to do the interesting science, I think that's pretty much just what I'm going to be doing. And that's my cop-out answer because <laughs> I don't have a specific vision. I don't think it's a cop-out at all. I think both, both tactics are totally valid. I think really it just comes down to like personality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm a planner by nature, I guess. Like I like to have a plan. I, like I said, I like instructions, but I also don't want to be bored. And so if I find that like I'm unhappy with doing something, then I'm going to do something different. And so. Right. Um, and I think that the things that you want to do change over time. So I was really stoked on the whole field work aspect and 
that's something that like, I, I still like doing it. I still want to be a modeler that, you know, can be tough and out in the field, but it's not as important to me as it was at one point, because I realized now that's like, oh, I like the flexibility that a computer provides in the sense that like, I can, when it wasn't COVID times, I could work from home. That was great. My work is portable. I love that. Uh, there are other things that, you know, I, I, I like being at home with my partner more, more often than not. Uh, I wouldn't want to be away on field campaigns. So these are the kind of things that I think as you grow up, you know, as a human being, not just a scientist, uh, or as you grow older, I guess I'm already grown up technically. <laughs> but I, I think that the things that you want out of life outside of your career change. And personally, I want to leave room to adapt to those things and to address those things and not just have my career be, you know, my five-year plan. My five-year plan is to be happy. <laughs> and I'm going to form my career in such a way that I'm, you know, doing something meaningful, but also staying balanced. Yeah. When I asked you that question, I, I would like to clarify that I asked that question, even though I don't have my own plan and also what I feel like for a five-year plan should be maybe personal and not work-related necessarily sometimes too. Like you're getting yeah. that because, yeah. Well, it's both, I, I guess, is, is what I would argue. It's like if somebody asks me what my five-year plan is, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is what I'd like to accomplish on the personal front. And so to do that, this is what my job should look like. I love this about my job. And so this is the whole picture. Yeah. 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 We're all humans and we have jobs and we have other interests. And, you know, it's also part of the podcast too, is just like showing that scientists and people in STEM are human. You yes. know, we have other interests in, you know, making it relatable because I'm sure something you've said will relate to somebody who listens, you know, in some way. <laughs> So I hope so. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I have backup plans of what I would do if I left science. They're like five and they're changing <laughs> all the time. And that's like my own like way of also coping with stress. It's like, I could always do this, 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 or this. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, but I'm choosing to do this. So it's exciting. I was talking to somebody a while back and I was like, you know, I don't think anybody gets into wetland science just because they think it's glamorous because it's <laughs> not glamorous. You know, you're often covered in mud or fall in a hole or whatever. But if you choose that path, then it doesn't suck as much. You're like, oh, I've chose this and I love my job. And yes, I'm stuck in a hole right now, but it's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think the point of that ramble is just like, there's a lot of value in like really enjoying your work. Uh, exactly. And there's value in also stepping back and realizing that you are not required to be doing the work that you're doing, that you have other options. And knowing that and knowing that you're still choosing to do the work you're doing, I think that's pretty empowering and mm -hmm. it's a good perspective to have. I agree. But if all else fails, I'm starting a greenhouse. So oh, nice. <laughs> my, my backup plan is like a used bookstore. So <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. Because I mean, that's what I do in my spare time is just sit around and read a lot when I'm not doing other, you know, running or whatever. So uh, what kind of reading do you like to do? I read all kinds of things. I end up reading like a mix of fiction and nonfiction, probably pretty close to 50 50. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of sci-fi. I do too. Sci-fi and fantasy. I, I mostly stick to fiction when I am not working and then nonfiction when I'm working. Mm -hmm. It's like that that office divide. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, reading is definitely another hobby of mine. Have you ever read anything by Kim Stanley Robinson? Yes. Have I, you read Antarctica by him? I have not read Antarctica. I tried to do the Planet series. I, I couldn't get through it. It was fascinating until it wasn't. And I think that it kind of just made me sad because <laughs> it's about like extreme climate change. And I was like, oh, this is a little too real. And I do like Kim Stanley Robinson, though. I thought that his like the way that he described things and the fact that it was rooted in science was really yes. cool. That's exactly why I love his books. Yeah, but Antarctica was good. It takes place like somewhere in the not so distant future, but right. I like the technology he has, he like comes up with. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I should, you know, I take book recommendations like nobody's business and I'm writing it down right now because I kind of like tried to read that series as said, it felt too real. And then I was like, oh, I shouldn't touch this for a while, but now. I don't know exactly which books are in that series, but that book in particular was really good. And a lot of his books do take place like in the same universe over, you know, whatever time frame. And like, I like it when it's rooted in science. 
That's always super satisfying. Those are the best sci-fi series. Uh, Neil Stevenson is another writer that like, he gets very descriptive with the things that he talks about, but as a nerd, I love that. Like he like in one series, he's describing like this mechanism for moving from a satellite uh, orbiting around earth down to earth, like a regular transportation mechanism. And it was just so cool. He described it probably over the course of four pages. And I feel like some people may have checked out, but I was just reading it, picturing it. It was just so cool. I was like, this would actually kind of work. Like the physics check out and maybe they don't. But I thought they did. I was convinced. Yeah, believable enough at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've read a few of his books, but not, not many. Uh, another book that if you haven't read, I would definitely recommend is The Swarm by Frank. I think his last name is Schatzing. He's German and I'm pretty sure I just butchered that and all my German friends are gonna be mad. <laughs> no, it's Schatzing and you got it. I'm German and you pronounce that correctly. <laughs> good. Yeah, it's that's a really good book. I actually, I've probably talked about that book on this podcast for like in like 10 different episodes. Um, <laughs> friend of mine that was on the podcast way in the beginning re recommended it to me. She does like ocean robotics stuff and there's like ocean robotics and whales and all these different things and these like, sub sea worms and methane gas and it's like also rooted in science and there's like real people and real boats in that book and it was just it was just fascinating and that I, sounds I'm gonna cool. have to read it again <laughs> yeah I mean I have to read it that sounds really great and yeah it sounds like it's rooted in some really cool science mm -hmm. that's yeah, was a good sci-fi yeah yeah well so is there anything else you want to add before we you know call the day I don't know I feel like we we did a pretty good you know tour de force of, of my glaciological ramblings. I just enjoy chatting about, about what I do and why it matters. And I think that a lot of people can get a little hung up in the fact that scientists are like nitty gritty people who work on something very specific. And I always think it's good to maintain the perspective of like, there are scientists who don't like just working on that one thing. Like, it's great if you do that because we need niche people. But I also think that we need to place more value on intersectional science. And I don't know, that's that's my gimmick that I'm trying to, <laughs> to yeah, totally push. Agree. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. The amount of people that work on the project I work on cover all types. There's engineers, there's modelers, there's field scientists like myself, there's project managers, there's all these people that make it go forward. Right. And without all those people, it would not go forward. Uh, Absolutely. So, Working on teams uh, is, I think, the best part of science. Like, mm -hmm. it can be the most frustrating part sometimes. Like, absolutely. People are frustrating, myself included. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that that's kind of the more human aspect of science. Yep. I totally agree. Well, it's been so nice to meet you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you too. And thank you. This was a nice opportunity. Again, like I said, to get excited about what I do um, and just kind of zoom out and think about the large scale perspective. Hey, all it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. Um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.